Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18. The message entitled, very simply, you've heard it several times throughout the worship service, Access to God. And it's very clear in our text um, today. Each of us here did something to prepare to come to worship. Maybe you prayed this morning and asked that you might come in the right spirit to worship the holy God. Hopefully you showered and cleaned yourself up in some way, put on some nice clothes. And so you've done something to prepare to come and to worship God. Maybe you meditated on the scriptures. Hopefully you read the text that was going to be preached if you received the email ahead of time so that you would be familiar with the passage. When it comes to the Lord's Day, when we come to approach God, we need to think that God meets with His people in a very unique way on the Lord's Day. Is God omnipresent? Yes and amen, right? He's everywhere present. We have access to Him as Christians at any time. But on the Lord's Day and in the corporate worship of God, He meets with His people in a very special way. Now, I'd like for you just for a moment to think of the Jewish man in the Old Testament times. Think of what, how did that man approach God? Well, if you think about it, there's a great sense of awe, a great sense of wonder. As you would go to approach God, you would have to go into your flock and select the very best lamb that you had. Maybe it was your favorite. Maybe it was your child's favorite. You would take that lamb and you would go and you would take it to a priest because you needed a priest to intervene, to be a mediator between you and God. And that lamb would be slaughtered and its blood spilt. Think of the Day of Atonement. That happened how often? Once a year, remember? When the high priest, one man, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies from the holy place, that place that was shrouded by a thick veil. And he would go in to atone for the sins of the people, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. The very thing we just sung in that song in 305 in the red. He would sprinkle that mercy seat. He met with God. And you children probably know this. When that high priest would prepare to go in there on the Day of Atonement, they would have bells on his outer garment and a rope tied to him. Because if he approached God in the wrong way, he would be struck down dead, just like Nadab and Abihu. And when those outside, the other priests, heard that there was no more bells, and some time would go by, they would pull him out. And he would be struck down dead. Why? Because he approached God in the wrong way. I submit to you that approaching God and having access to God is a very serious thing, and it's a great privilege for those of us who are in the new covenant. Jesus Christ provides the access that we need to God through his high priestly work. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read six verses there. And this is in relation to what I've just been talking about. The writer of the Hebrews says, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers 
because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now he's describing Jesus. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above in the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests, who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So you see, all those high priests throughout the old covenant, they would serve once and then another would be selected. And and some of them were struck down dead and it was a very serious thing. Now, the writer of the Hebrews in the new covenant, we have a much better covenant. Jesus Christ has has made that access so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And this is a thrilling thing as we consider this. Now, back to that Old Covenant uh, times, Old Testament times. Think if you were a Gentile. Most of us in here, I think, are Gentiles. We might have a few Jewish uh, ethnic people here. But as a Gentile in ancient days, you were not even allowed to approach to get as close as what the Jew did. He stood where? Afar off. And you may have been a lover of the God of Abraham, but still you were afar off. You could not draw near. Whether it's a Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, or whatever, you had to be afar off. You could never approach God. In Ephesians 2, that's why Paul told us, tells us in this section, beginning in verse 11, to remember, remember that you, you Gentiles, were formerly afar off. And then in verse 13, but now in Jesus Christ, you were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're to remember that it's the work of Christ that has done this. And last time we saw that he, he renders access to God he, because he is our peace. He's abolished the enmity. He's broke down the wall of separation, which isn't a physical wall, right, necessarily. It's all the ceremonial law that separated Jew and Gentile. Because the Gentile could not come and participate in the Day of Atonement, the feasts, the sacrifices, offerings, and worship, and all of those things. And so the wonder of Ephesians 2 that Paul is setting forth is there's no longer any distinction. He has now made a new humanity of Jew and Gentile. And that encompasses all races. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. One new humanity. And last time... In verses 14, 15, and 16, once in each verse, he emphasizes the one. He's made them into one, in verse 15, into one new man, speaking, speaking figuratively. And then verse 16, that he might reconcile them both into one body to God. And it's all because of the work of Christ. That's Paul's agenda, putting this forth. And this is marvel of marvels. Well, let's read our text here. I'd like to read from verse 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, 
which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, let's ask God's help before we go any further. Our dear God, we do confess that you are holy and just and righteous in all of your ways. Lord, those who desire to worship you must come rightly before you. We thank you, Lord, for the new covenant, a better covenant. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and the access that we have to you. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our hearts in such a way that you would pull away perhaps callous layers, that you'd pull away the hardness, that you'd make our hearts tender, that we would appreciate and love the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ even all the more. And then, yea, not only loving it, but making use of this great privilege that we have of access to you. Lord, speak to our hearts. Convict us where necessary. Send the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for the young ones that are in our midst, O oh God, as they hear the gospel yet again, Lord, may they hunger and thirst. May you instill a, a, a saltiness, a thirst, Lord, that they might cry out to you in mercy and be saved. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, um, hopefully you've received an outline with three simple points. In verse 17, have you heard and received the peace that Jesus proclaims? Now notice, it says, and he. Now if you follow the pronouns all the way back, it's speaking of Christ. Christ is the main subject of verses 11 to 18. There are several pronouns used again and again. It's speaking of Christ. The subject is implied. So it's he came and preached peace okay, to those who were far away and to those who are near. Now, if you have an NAS version or another version which makes that explicit that that's an Old Testament quote, that's good because Paul is drawing on two Old Testament texts, which we'll get to in a moment. But again, this is pointing to those far away are Gentiles, those who are near are Jews. And so again, it's, it's pointing to the fact that the same peace was proclaimed to both. And this word for preached is, it means to announce good news. It occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. And so we must ask, if the subject is Christ, and this is a quotation from two different verses in the book of Isaiah, when did Jesus preach this peace? That's a logical question. That's a good question to ask. Well, John records for us in one of his post, first post-resurrection appearances to his disciples Three times in chapter 20 alone, and I'll just read them for the sake of time. When therefore it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus therefore again said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Later, he says, it says, and after eight days, again, his disciples were inside. And this time Thomas with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst, and he said, peace be with you. Well, he's proclaiming peace. He's giving peace. He's giving a benediction of peace, really, to 
his disciples, his, the apostles, as they are forming and having the foundation laid for him in this post-resurrection appearance. But is this, does this verse here in Ephesians 2 limit us to that? No, it does not limit us to that. For example, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You're my proclaimers, proclaimers of the gospel, proclaimers of the peace that God has made with men, witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. A few weeks ago, we had Acts chapter 10 read for our scripture reading. And in there with Peter, it says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So Peter is proclaiming it, but he's, he's reiterating the peace that Jesus has proclaimed. And furthermore, all of us are to be witnesses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Each of us are to be proclaimers of this peace. We're to announce the good news of the gospel. We're to let people know that Jesus has proclaimed this. It's recorded in his word. I've experienced it in my heart through being transformed by the power of the gospel. And we are to announce it. In fact, later in chapter 10, in that, spirit, uh, that section of the armor of God, in verse 15, chapter 10, chapter 6, in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so as we come back to our text here, and he came and preached peace to you. And so we, obvious application as ambassadors, we are to tell others about the peace that Jesus offers. I mean, just think for just a moment at your previous unconverted state. Maybe you were converted young and you can't remember that very well. But think of how there's one thing that stands out when I think of Kurt Aaron. 24 years old and younger, lack of peace. I had no peace. When the gospel came in, when it transformed my heart, when I was completely renewed, when I saw Christ in all of his glory for who he is as revealed in the word, and knowing that I've been reconciled to a holy God, I experienced peace for the first time. Because I've known nothing but enmity, nothing but hatred, nothing but disfellowship, and now in sweet fellowship, being united to him. And you too, if you're here today and you're converted, you know of this peace, you know of the gospel, and we have a responsibility to take that gospel. We heard a message a couple weeks ago from Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. We have a responsibility. Now let's look at the verses that... Paul is drawing from. There's two. One is Isaiah 57 and um, verse 19 where it says, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The other verses he's drawing on is from Isaiah 52 and verse 7, which is more familiar, and we have a song and it's right before Isaiah 53 there. But how lovely are the mountains, are the feet of him who brings, there it is, good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, 
your God reigns. And so Paul here in this beautiful section of radical reconciliation, of being brought into one body, Jew and Gentile, draws on these old covenant texts from the prophet Isaiah, sort of meshes two of them together to put together his interpretation here that this is Christ that's proclaiming this peace. And it's by his work that this peace comes. So I'd like to ask you, when was the last time you had opportunity to tell somebody about the gospel of peace? Maybe some of us it's much more recent. Maybe, maybe others it's been quite some time. When is the last time? If you're here today and you're converted and you've tasted of this peace, you've tasted of this joy, you know what it is to have reconciliation to God, you know who Jesus Christ is, when's the last time you told somebody else about the good news of the gospel? We need to think about that. We need to think about, are we, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and are we just keeping it to ourselves? I can't let anybody see it and walking around like this. Are we saying, look at this treasure. The gospel is offered freely to any who will repent and believe. You see, I think one of the reasons why we can stop sharing the gospel as often as we should or maybe as often as we did when we were new Christians or earlier in our walks is because we have ceased to be amazed by the gospel when we cease to be amazed about the person and work of Jesus Christ, we're not enamored with it. We share what we're enamored with, right? A new little gadget, new electronic toy, you know, a sports team or something, a touchdown or whatever. We'll share that. We want to share, Dave, did you see that, right? But if we're enamored with the gospel, we're going to want to tell others about it and look for opportunities and redeem those opportunities to ask yourself, if I'm not sharing the gospel as often as I used to, is it because I've ceased to be amazed about the glories of the gospel? And that's why we try to make the gospel central in all we do here so that we can leave this place, as it were, like Moses glowing, being reminded of the truths of the gospel. That's why we have the Lord's Supper every week so we can be reminded with bread and wine that he really did die. His body was broken and his precious blood was spilt. And this reminds me that he's my only hope before a holy God. So Jesus has preached peace and we continue this proclamation as ambassadors of Christ. Secondly, do you have access to God? Verse 18, he says, Preaching peace to those who are far off and those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, it's, it's remarkable to me how quickly some of the commentators, I'll usually try to read commentaries on Friday when I've done most of my work, how quickly they just pass right over this verse. This verse is packed full of theology. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to even condense it down into one message with verse 17 but there's a lot here and i hope you'll see that first of all the result of reconciliation is access to god remember verses 14 to 16 the last section of which i referred to a few times the result of that reconciliation now is that we have access to god and we must admit that access to god can be a dangerous thing Deepu read for us from leviticus chapter 10 nadab and abihu who came Without the right heart, they offered strange fire, 
They said, no, I, I know a better way, God. I'm gonna, I want to mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit more of this than what you prescribed. And God did what? Struck them dead. Here they are, priests, set apart for the worship of God. That's their job. They're not an engineer. They don't just worship God one day a week. That's their job, okay? 24-7, that's their job. They're priests. They're set apart. And they offered strange fire to God that was not prescribed by Him. And fire came out and consumed them, and they died. Of course, that was in the Old Testament. We are in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. But we, too, must take worship seriously. Do you remember this, the situation in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira, do you remember that example when they came and then they lied to Peter? Such and such money, we sold this property and we're giving it to the work of the Lord. And Peter says, was it really that much? Boom, he struck down, she comes in, she plays in with the lie and she struck down. That example that it's still a serious thing in the new covenant. Thankfully, in four plus years, we haven't had anybody struck down in this building that I'm aware of. Um, <laughs> but still, my point is this is worship is very serious. And, and I, I want to remind you that it's very important to prepare for worship. You know, I hope you're not just doing your own thing and watching TV or sports or whatever. Oh, I guess it's time. Okay, I'll jump in the car and go. Do you pray? Do you begin praying Saturday? Sometimes Friday. Prepare my heart that I might worship brightly, that I might not have wandering thoughts. One of the Puritans, Richard Steele, wrote a book, Remedy for Wandering Thoughts in Worship, a book specifically designed for that. Now, I know we're not going to take a show of hands, but how many times since this sermon began have you had wandering thoughts, whether it's about lunch, whether it's about sport, whatever? It's a real problem, and so we need to pray and ask God, help me, O Lord, to come, as it were, to Christ's feet. To realize that we're really entering into your presence and that this is serious business. And that when Jesus tells the woman at the well to worship in spirit and in truth, that I would take that seriously, not flippantly. We live in a day when there is irreverent worship going on all within a couple of miles of here where there's almost circus activities going on drama skits, this and that, and all of this silly stuff that's not prescribed in the Word of God. And then the preaching of the Word is dumbed down and numbed down to sometimes where it's just a little play act or a little pottery act or something, and there is no sermon. It's a real problem in our day. God, when He is proclaimed for the front, is, is, is sort of proclaimed like, hey, this is your new best friend. He's an old guy. He rocks in a chair. He's just... He's just Right here, just, just a little bit above you rather than, no, he's altogether transcendent and holy. He's far. It's only through Christ that we have that access, that we can be drawn close to him. It's not this rocking chair thing. It's not this old buddy kind of thing. And so we live in a day when worship is not taken seriously. So here at Grace Bible Church, we follow something called the regulative principle. It simply means if it's prescribed in the Word of God, we must do it. It's not optional, okay? Um, we must do it. And if it's not prescribed, we will not allow it into the worship service. And I could say more about that, but I'll try to reserve 
self-control. <laughs> God has revealed how he is to be worshipped. And our liturgy is fairly simple. Tamri, dear sister, works on this bulletin every week for us. And those of us who lead, Deepu and I, work hard to get everything out so that you have these scripture readings, call to worship, benediction. So you can go home, if you've missed any part of the service, what did I miss? And you can see the simplicity of what we do. It begins with a call to worship. We are entering God's presence. Stand. And then an invocation, praying, Lord, would you please hear us? Would you please be accepted? Would our worship be acceptable to you? And so we begin with that invocation, invoking his presence to be with us. And that's why you don't see such and such, Mr. and Mrs. this drama stuff and this and that and, and all of these things. If it's not prescribed in the word, we don't do it. We're told to sing. We're told to read scripture. We're told to pray. And we're, we're told to preach the word of God. Well, moving on, let's look at our text. All of that preliminary <laughs> introduction to verse 18. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit. The word through, dia, in the original is very important here. It clearly, specifically says, it's emphatic, that Jesus Christ is the instrument or the agency by whom we have access to God. And it is only through him through which believing Jews and Gentiles could come into the presence of God. The benefits of our salvation come through Christ as our mediator and our great high priest. And we enter as we draw near through him. He is the author of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10. He was the forerunner of our salvation. And this is more than just Paul saying that now Gentiles enjoy the privileges that the Jews always did. No, this is radically different for Jews too, right? No more slaughtering of lambs, no more going for the Day of Atonement, right? It's done. The temple's gone, destroyed. A.D. 70. In fact, I think Gordon Fee gets it right. If you notice the little words, we both, for through him, we both. Okay, what is that talking of? It means not simply that we both alike, Jew and Gentile, have access, but we both together have access. It's another implication of the oneness that we are to have as the people of God. No matter which nation, tribe, whatever you've come from, the oneness that we have. We together have access to him. Why? Because of the radical reconciliation that we looked at last time in the previous verses. Notice also that we have a picture of the Trinity. For through him, there's the pronoun again, pointing back to Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, so we both together have access in one spirit, emphasis again, to the Father. So we have a beautiful picture of the Trinity here. We have Trinitarian access through Christ and one spirit to the Father. The only access to the three persons of the Godhead is through Christ. And we, we live through him. Just do a study in your Bible software or Esort or whatever, and just through him, and look at all of the verses. First John chapter 4, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We live through him. We have access to the Father through him. And then in John chapter 10, 
the other passage, our other New Testament scripture reading, we saw the picture of Jesus Christ as the door to the sheep. He's the good shepherd uh, in the previous verses, 1 through 5, and then 11 and on. But verses 7 to 10 are remarkable, and I'm going to read those again. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, the access, to the sheep. All who have come in before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not hear them, but I am the door. Is that the third I am, I think, in the seven I am's? And John, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. He is the shepherd. He is the door. It is only through him. He's the perfect door. Remember, he condemns the rulers of the day three times in this passage that Deepu read. Um, and they're being bad shepherds and not caring for the sheep in contrast to the good shepherd. He is the only door. Verse 9, and you will be saved. How? Through me, it says in John ten nine. Later in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And at the end of chapter 10, we didn't read this, but fascinating section. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The door leads to the family of God of my sheep. My sheep are the family of God. Christ opens his word through my voice. My sheep hear my voice. It leads to fellowship and I know them. Term of closeness and then the perseverance of the saints of the everlasting life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you go through that door, once you've entered into his salvation, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Well, secondly, under the second point, this access to the triune God is our special privilege. Now, this word access, we should talk about uh, briefly. Um, It only occurs three times in the Greek New Testament. In classical Greek, as you know, before the New Testament was written, it was a term to convey a scene of an oriental court where subjects were granted access to the king. They would petition access to approach the king and then eventually were granted access and could come in. That's the word's occurrence in a classical Greek. And New Testament Greek's not a whole lot different. It's the act of bringing to, or secondly, an access or an approach, but with an emphasis, as one lexicon puts it, that friendly relation with God whereby we are acceptable to him and have assurance that he is favorably disposed to us. Sort of like back to the Oriental thing, when the scepter goes forth, right? Then you, have, you, you, you know you can go without fear of death, hopefully. <laughs> but the only other two occurrences of this is Paul uses it just right across on the next page in Ephesians 3.12. The same word, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So there's the confident access, the emphasis that the translators gave. And then Romans chapter 5, which bears looking at, and the ESV and NIV actually translate it, um, access. Romans chapter 5. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, again, through him, also we have obtained our introduction by faith, literally our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so those are the only two occurrences of this word, but it's speaking very emphatically about the access that we have. We have to remember, do you remember the gospel account when Jesus gave up his spirit? Do you remember what happened to the veil in the temple? Is it was torn from where, kids? Top to bottom, right? Not from the bottom to the top, from top to bottom. And that was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And I can't remember the thickness, but it's over a foot thick, if I remember properly. It's been some time since I studied that. That veil is not something that tears really easy like a piece of paper, (laughs) okay? This was something that God has done, and it was from top to bottom. And what is that a picture of? That just as his flesh was torn for us, that the tearing of the veil, now that separation has been removed. It's a vivid picture of the direct access we have to God now. Hebrews chapter 10, turn over there, Hebrews 10, I'd like for you to see these verses for yourself in verse 19, Hebrews 10. Beginning in verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see that? The confidence to enter the holy place right there in verse 19. How? By the blood of Jesus, a new and a living way, which he inaugurated through the veil. The veil, the actual veil was torn, but he tells us what that's a picture of. That is his flesh. If you don't get it, that is his flesh. As his flesh was torn, the veil was torn. And since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. Uh, one of the commentators, John Ades, says about the Ephesians passage, now the most distant Gentile who is in Christ, really and continuously enjoys that spiritual privilege which the one man of the one tribe, of the one nation, of the one day a year, speaking of the Day of Atonement, only typically and periodically possessed. In other words, the access that the high priest had one day out of 360 or whatever their calendar was, the, the one day that he had access All New Covenant Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, have access at any time, magnifying the privilege that we have. Well, let's move on. Having looked at Christ proclaiming peace, our responsibility to follow suit, the access that we have lastly, and and really related to um, what we've been talking about, is do you pray to God the Father? If you are a child of God, you've been adopted into his family The Father makes no distinction of Jew and Gentile. He is holy and perfect. And the doctrine of adoption is a a wonderful thing. We've talked about it earlier in Ephesians 1. 
just quoting Romans 8, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Very words that Christ used speaking of his Father. Abba, Father. The word originally meant to to have all the full rights of inheritance. And that's really what Romans 8 and verse 17 says. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So adoption speaks to those who believe in Christ and are accepted by God as his children. We are joint heirs with him. Well, as we talk about prayer, and uh, we won't take a survey of how everyone's prayer life is, but I read this week a wonderful illustration from The Wizard of Oz, and so maybe some of you young kids that are familiar with that story could listen. We struggle with a Wizard of Oz model of prayer. Richard Phillips brought this out. Um, The story of The Wizard of Oz, as you know, is a girl from Kansas, right? She's transported where? To the magical land of Oz. She wants to go home. She's told to seek out the great and powerful wizard of Oz who lives in the Emerald City. She travels around. She bumps into a scarecrow that joins the team, the ten man, and the cowardly lion, right? And they, they band together. After some adventures, they finally come to the city and they ask to see the wizard. They are told what many of us expect to be told about God. He is too busy for puny people like them. They have no right to intrude upon the great and powerful Oz. But with daring resourcefulness, Dorothy manages to get into the chamber to see the wizard. He is ominous and scary. His face is wreathed with flames and smoke. Fearfully, she makes her request, but the wizard refuses to grant them. She must first complete the quest to prove her worth. It is only after she succeeds and returns with the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West that the wizard is willing to help. After which, we learn that the wizard's not so powerful after all. That is how many of us think about prayer. God is too busy for our prayers. Our prayers are a bother. If we get his attention, we face a daunting, unwilling deity that's, that's unwilling to grant our requests. If he does answer our prayer, we think it's because we've done something good first to warrant an answer a prayer. And so we are pretty much on our own. And with all of that, why bother to pray? See what the Wizard of Oz uh, model of prayer is? But Paul writes here in verse 18, it totally disintegrates that. The book of Hebrews disintegrates that theology, that mindset that some can fall into. We have direct access through Christ in one spirit to the Father. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent many years preaching through Ephesians, um, you think I'm going slow, he's going (laughs) really, really slow, about 40 sermons on each chapter. Um, He says this, the moment you see that you are made righteous by Christ and clothed in his righteousness, you can go to God with confidence. He is your Father. He is waiting to receive you, and you can pray as you have never prayed before. The way is clear. It is a new and living way which has been opened, and you are at peace with God and at peace within, and you have found rest for your soul. 
So we have that access. When we, we have to remember that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He sees us in that righteousness. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace, which leads me to some practical implications of this direct access to God. Hebrews 4, um, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace, what? To help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, you can approach God at any time. We need to remember this. In our day-to-day lives, in the tyranny of the urgent, while we're patrolling the streets, while we're developing new software, whatever our job is, we can remember that we have approach, we can approach Him at any time to receive mercy if we're trusting in Christ. Some of you young people, maybe you're tempted to be rebellious to your parents. Maybe you're tempted to peer pressure at school. Maybe you'll be tempted in a short bit on the playground with some other kids that are provoking you to respond in anger or to inflict physical pain. You can pray right then if you're trusting in Christ and ask, Lord, help me. Give me the help I need. Let me find grace to escape the situation. Mothers, home with the children diapers and laundry and cooking and you wonder does anybody even recognize it you know the hard work that i'm doing all the crying of the babies and fretting as to whether god sees or anyone else notices sometimes you might want to give up but you can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace the very verse chapter 4 and verse 15 says that he sympathizes with our weaknesses he knows in every way has been tempted even as you are, and yet without sin. It's a marvel, a marvel. Fathers, men, in the workplace, you hear, you hear profanity, you hear profane jokes, you hear stuff you shouldn't be listening to. Maybe there's a flirtatious receptionist that you have to walk by every day, and you have to deal with that and do whatever it takes to flee that. Go to him. You have access to him and ask for grace to help in time of need. Maybe you're tempted to use company time for your own personal stuff. Maybe you're tempted to anger in the home. You can go to Christ at any time. Draw near with confidence, asking for help. And, and, and actually, there's Hebrews 4.16, and it says to find grace to help in time of need. It's, it's literally at just the right time. But we have to come. We draw near. We ask. Those of you who are single... If you want to be married, you're experiencing loneliness. You forget that God is sovereign and that God has a plan for your life and that God's timing is the best timing. You forget that you, and you need to be reminded you need to be faithful today. God will bring that in due course. Right now, Jesus Christ is the best friend you have and you can draw near with confidence at any time to find mercy and grace at time of need. Well, very briefly, a couple of concluding comments you have an open invitation to come to the Father at any time through Christ. He's loved us so much. He's demonstrated that through the work of His Son dying on the cross. And we must live in light of these wonderful truths. We can't let our guilt keep us back. We can't let our feelings keep us back. Don't even let your sin keep you away from approaching God. Confess your sins. Come claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. All too often, I think it's really unbelief that keeps us away. Unbelief that He cares. Unbelief that He's concerned. 
unbelief that I'm thinking that somehow I don't have to repent. We need to come to him. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, he died in your place, in order that he might bring us to God. So there's a sense in which there's that bringing us to God through the mediation of Christ, that, that we have the access that we have, but ultimately he will bring us to God when we pass from this life and when we die. We need to think of the preciousness of his blood, that he was the unblemished lamb that was slaughtered on our behalf. Secondly, don't ever approach God without Christ. The truths that we've been looking at in the second half of Ephesians 2 is just good news. Good news of the gospel. The whole book has been the good news of the gospel. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, your eternal destiny could be changed today in God's perfect sovereignty. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's near in a very special way. In the public worship of his people. Jesus has put to death the enmity. He's brought us near, those who were afar off. He has become our peace. And we need to have the cry of the psalmist that says, Show us your loving kindness, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people and to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. See, sometimes I think we can forget of the great privilege that we have as far as this access to God, the the peace that we have as Christians. And those of you who are not Christians, the peace that is offered freely through Christ. I read an analogy this week that I think is worth reading. When the Civil War came to an end, the North and the South, the conflict had come to an end. They were free, the soldiers were free to return to their families. But the number of them remained hidden in the woods, living on berries. They, they either did not hear that the war was over or they could not believe that it was actually over and safe to go home. So they continued living in that miserable condition, living on berries, in the woods, moving around. It's something like how it is in the spiritual realm. Christ made peace between God and man. He died in our place. He paid sin's penalty on the cross. Anyone who accepts the sacrifice is forgiven by him. But many people refuse to believe the gospel and continue to live as spiritual fugitives, refusing to believe the good news, depriving themselves of the peace and the serenity that they could have. Even some Christians who put their trust in Christ and have been saved by grace can forget these truths and starve themselves from not feeding on the word, not communing with God, not meditating as we ought whether it's out of ignorance, unwillingness, sin, you fail to claim the promises of God's word. We need to remember that we are objects of his love and care for in Christ and, and all of his provision and not live as orphans, not live as soldiers who can't believe that the war is over. Have you been living apart from this comfort? Come to him. Realize the war is over. He's put to death the enmity. You can have peace with God. Repent. Trust in Christ. He is the only way of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth 
contained in your word and the truths that we've considered today. Thank you for the access, a full and free access that we enjoy as your people. Lord, may we make use of that often. We pray that you would help us, O God, that you'd grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Lord, that you'd help us to put to death remaining sin. Lord, that you would help us to draw near with confidence often, that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.